Shall we pray together before we begin tonight? Praise your wonderful name, Lord. Praise you, Lord. Hallelujah. Father, it's just a delight to be able to gather around your word tonight. And Father, we thank you that your Holy Spirit is leading us into all truth. Father, we would ask your anointing upon us in such measure, Father, that we will be overwhelmed with your Holy Spirit. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to learn these things because these things are spiritual things and they're spiritually discerned. Father, I ask you to give us a double portion even tonight. And Father, for all those listening to the tape, we just ask that the Holy Spirit may fill the rooms in which they're seated, that, Father, they might know that he is with them and that the risen Christ is in their midst. Father, as I just speak tonight, I just pray for wonderful miracles to occur in our hearts, in our bodies, in our souls, that our faith should be confirmed and that we might know that you have spoken to this earth, even through your word. Father, I ask you to just bless us tonight. And Father, just take my stumbling mouth and may it be the source of blessing, the channel of your spirit. In Jesus' mighty name, Amen. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Praise God. Well, we begin tonight the sixth basic series. Having completed the series called The Character of God, which, may I say, I consider one of the most important of the series so far, it's time for us to swivel our eyes around, and instead of looking at God and his basic doctrine, to actually have a look at the Bible itself. And the next 14 studies are going to be concerned with this book that we call the Word of God. You see, up to this time, we've assumed that the Bible is a good authority, haven't we? We've assumed that. Um, right from the first tape, and through every tape, we've done nothing but pour through the Scriptures. But sooner or later, as you share your faith with someone, someone's going to say to you, but hold on a minute, everything you believe is based on the Bible. How do you know that the Bible is an authority that you can trust? And no matter how much you squirm, sooner or later, you will find someone pinning you down. Now listen, they'll say, how on earth can you trust a book like that? Fancy basing the whole of your life on a book that is nothing but mythology. This is what they'll say. And you've got to have an answer for them. I think it would be best if we start immediately in the Word of God. And can we turn to 1 Peter and chapter 3, verse 15? For here it tells us that the unbeliever has a right to ask you why you believe what you do believe and a right to expect a good answer from you. You know, some Christians think that our faith is sort of irrational. I have people who said that to me when I was a young Christian. Oh, it doesn't matter. Just believe it. Have you heard people say that? It doesn't matter that it doesn't make sense. Just believe it. And so I had this tendency to enter into sort of easy believism. Well, I can't explain why. I just believe it. And that's it. This verse says that you have a duty to give a reasoned explanation of the hope that is within you. Can I just read it through? It says here, I think verse 14, But, and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And the last bit is added because he doesn't want you getting bombastic, you know, getting angry with them. Well, don't confuse me. This is what I believe. You've met people like that. Don't confuse me with the facts. I've made up my mind. Now listen, no Christian should be one of the people who's made up their minds and they don't want to know that there are people opposing it. Rather, we should be those who've so looked at our faith that we may not have all the answers, but we are able to say, look, I've had that problem, and this is how God showed me the answer to it. This type of argument should be common with us. By the way, have you ever heard of the three cats? Has anyone told you the story of the three cats? 
Well, there's a story about three cats, and you've got one called fact, one called faith, and one called experience. Have you heard of these three cats? And the poor things, two of them were very short-sighted. If there were cat opticians, they would have wore glasses, right? Very, very short-sighted indeed. One of them, that is facts, could see well. And the story goes that, of course, as long as facts is first on the wall, the others are all right. Facts moves along the wall and it can see where it's going, and faith comes close behind gazing at facts, and experience comes up, last of all, keeping its eyes on faith. And so, as long as you've got them in that order, you're safe. The tragedy is so many people don't have them in that order. They have faith first, then experience, then facts. Well, with these cats, they're going to fall off the wall, you see? If you put experience first, then your faith, then the facts, they're going to fall off the wall as well. The only cat that will certainly stay on the wall is facts. Now, the reason we've got a Bible is this, that our faith is based on facts. You'll notice that our Bible is mainly historical fact. Have you noticed that? I mean, have you ever wondered why it gives list after list after list of genealogies? And so-and-so begets so-and-so, and so-and-so begets so-and-so, and so-and-so begets so-and-so. Why is it in there? It's there so that any rational person will say, this is an historical document, and I've at least got to take it seriously. It's not like some of the fanciful books that other people believe in. It has, in its essence, history. It is a historical textbook. Now listen, our faith is based on the facts. Isn't that lovely to know? And therefore, our faith is not blind, it's reasoned. It moves according to God's light. Don't trust anyone who says to you, we'll just take it by faith. Don't trust them at all. You know this power of positive thinking that comes up. Well, you're only three foot six, but just see yourself as six foot six. So you walk around, there you are, you know, six foot six, as far as you're concerned. You're going to come a cropper. You really will. Because the faith that you've got isn't based on any fact. If you go into a house, you know, and you have faith that this floor will hold you up. Well, I hope it's based on fact. Because if it isn't based on fact, you're going to go tumbling through it. We must have facts first. Then comes our faith based on the facts. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Then your experience follows it up. By the way, in Christianity, we have a form of the power of positive thinking, but the great thing is the positive thoughts we have are based on facts. When God says to you, you're more than a conqueror, folks, it's true. Isn't that wonderful? So when you start saying, I'm more than a conqueror, your experience comes along and says, I feel more than a conqueror, you can trust it because it's based on the facts of the Word of God. All right, so we have to say, well, how do we know that this Bible is trustworthy? And so in the early studies of this particular course, we're going to take a critical look at the Bible, and we're going to actually ask a few questions about it. And in the course of these studies, I hope I'll be answering some of the difficulties that you may have experienced, and certainly some of the difficulties that others have experienced. I think it would be good, uh, by way of introduction, to just introduce myself as a Bible teacher, right? I am a Bible teacher, but do you know something? I didn't know until a few years ago that I was a Bible teacher. Now, most of you know that I was converted at university, and I took off like a rocket, right? And I haven't stopped going since. I mean, there's hardly a day past uh, that I have not learnt something new about the Lord, I mean, I can count the number of days I've been out of fellowship, probably on the fingers of, of two hands, you know. And the minute I was converted, it was so wonderful. It was so different. It was so dynamic. At last, God loved me, and I knew that he did, that I thought, this has to be it, and I'm going to throw everything into it. Do you know, within six months, I was Bible teaching. Isn't that staggering? I mean, I didn't know anything. I knew nothing at all about the Bible. Yet within six months, I had a room that was crammed with people. We used to have people sitting on the desk, under the desk. We used to have people sitting right along the bed, right along the window, on every available chair, all over the floor, even in the cupboard. <laughs> and there was a space where you could put your baggage, and we used to have someone lying in that. 
at the top. And there was I, often preaching to people who were more mature in God than I was, you see. But the trouble was they didn't seem to know their Bibles. And you know, in the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. You know that, don't you? <laughs> I, I didn't really have any problems at all, because you see, I only used to speak about one subject. I never spoke about any other subject, just one. Do you know what that was? It was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's all I used to speak about. And the gifts of the Spirit and so on. In the next course, we'll be dealing with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. All I'm thankful for is that those early talks weren't recorded. <laughs> oh, it must have been horrific, you know, when, when I look back on those talks. Incidentally, the early talks of this basic series are, uh, were given 10 years ago, you know, and uh, I have trouble listening to those. My style's changed so much. The tapes won't let me change them, unfortunately. But I have trouble. You imagine what these early talks used to be like. It must have been horrific. But in those days, I didn't know I was a Bible teacher. I mean, if anything, I thought my ministry was in the word of knowledge, because that was the gift that I used to use more than any other gift at that particular time. And you know, even when the fellowship began here, I had no idea I was a Bible teacher. I didn't have the slightest inkling that that's what God had up his sleeve for me. Didn't know. And it was only after three years of the fellowship uh, being in existence that I thought, well, do you know, these people need Bible teaching. What are we going to do? They're getting no Bible teaching. And I looked round, you know, for someone who could come regularly to give Bible teaching, and there wasn't anyone. So I thought, well, I'd better do it. And I'd heard a couple of good messages, so I thought, well, I'll rehash those for the first few, and then we'll move on, you know, which, praise the Lord, I have moved on since those early days. But that's what we do. And the very first Bible study I gave in this fellowship was given, I think, to 10 people in a room. The fellowship was, what, 15 in size or 20 in size in that day. And uh, I gave it to just these 10 people. Are any people here who were in that original Bible study? There's one. One. The others are obviously on... Two. Yes, only two here. The others are on holiday, obviously. But... Um, <laughs> I gave it to this small group of people, and it was in Mike and Susie's house, and uh, I just started to speak. And I remember that a nurse couldn't make it. I think she was a nurse. She couldn't make it that evening. She said, Roger, I'm going to miss this first Bible study. Could you tape record it for me? And so we put a little tape recorder up, and that was the first recorded message I ever gave. And you know, it was amazing, because we decided to tape record every other one after that, and soon people wanted them. I mean... Shiver my timbers, I didn't, I didn't know. I had no idea at all that they would want these Bible studies. And it only dawned on me, just I think a year or so after that, that perhaps I had a gift of Bible teaching. Well, may I say, God has confirmed it very richly since that time. Can I give you just a couple of miracles that I had? These are wonderful stories. I could go on and on telling you how God has supplied. You know, as a Bible teacher, it's essential that you have a good library. I have a library filled with the books of people that I don't agree with, but at least I know what they said. Do you see what I mean? And that's a useful sort of library to have. But I needed certain basic books. And God had to provide, because many of these books are tremendously expensive. And one set I needed was the Cambridge Ancient History. This is the last word in ancient history. I mean, if you're interested in ancient history, this is the set you must get. Trouble is, it costs a couple of hundred pounds. Where was I going to get them? And I gazed at them in foils in London, you know, just longing, Lord, just give them to me, please, in Jesus' name. You know, hoping a Christian would come up and say, Roger, I really feel I should buy you these books, and so on. But it didn't seem to happen. But God had it in mind. And you know, I have to tell you the miracle that happened. A good friend of mine, who was in this fellowship until she got married, was out doing a PhD in Kenya. And she was researching the geology of the volcanic deposits of Kenya. And uh, she was out there, and her camera was very important to her. But one day it was stolen. Now, she'd had it insured in London. So she wrote off to the insurer said, look, my camera has been stolen. It's worth £700. I've insured it for £700. Please send me the cheque. And they did. You know the good London insurers. And the cheque came along. Much to her amazement, in Nairobi, she could buy the same camera that she had for about £300 less than what she paid for it in London. 
So she suddenly found she had 300 pounds bakshi over, left in her bank account. Isn't that wonderful? Anyway, the day came, just a few months later, when she came home to London. She was in Bedford College in London University, and she heard I was ministering in London. She decided to come along. The night before, she couldn't sleep, right? And she tossed and she turned, and all she kept seeing was this row of red books on a shelf, <laughs> bright red books, and it kept coming and coming and coming to her, these red books, red books, red books. And in the morning, you know, bleary-eyed, she said, Lord, you're trying to say something to me? <laughs> and she remembered uh, that in the evening I was speaking, and she thought, I wonder if there's a set of books that he needs. And she went to Foyles, and there, sitting on the shelf, was a set of red books. Now, they were so expensive, she couldn't afford them all, but she bought most of the volumes, and turned up in the evening, absolutely exhausted, with this huge box, and she said, Roger, do you need these? <laughs> Wasn't that wonderful? And I opened them up. I just skipped for joy. I thought it was so wonderful. It was a confirmation of my ministry. Incidentally, there's a lady sitting here who should remain nameless. All right, Kate, I won't give you away. Um, and this particular lady used to live up near Lincoln. Now, there were certain books that I needed. There was a set of commentaries by a lovely Anglican bishop of last century, uh, Christopher Wordsworth of Lincoln Cathedral. By the way, my cousin is diocesan secretary for education in Lincoln Cathedral, but I don't think he had this set of books. You know, praise God, it was a chance for a miracle. And I also needed a copy of Pember's book, Earth's Earliest Ages. So uh, Kate was down with us, and I just mentioned my need of, uh, of a particular set of books. And as she was living near Lincoln, we decided that we'd put an advertisement in, and Kate was thrilled, you know, willing to do it. And she put an advertisement in the local newspaper, please, 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 has anyone got a set of commentaries by Christopher Wordsworth and a copy of Pember's Earth's Earliest Ages? And that was the advertisement went, that went in. Well, the first person who rang up uh, said, oh yes, I've got an old set in the uh, loft of uh, Christopher Wordsworth's commentaries. She charged me 14 pounds, didn't she, for those? It's quite good as well, right? And that was it. The second woman rang up and apparently had very bad eyesight indeed, so bad that she always had to have the newspaper read to her. And uh, this woman had read the newspaper to her, put it to one side. The woman had looked round and suddenly had seen the word please written there. And it was so unusual, she called the woman back and said, excuse me, I've just seen the word please. Could you uh, read me the advert, please? And it said, please, please, please. Has anyone got and Pember's Earth's, uh, Earth's Earliest Ages? And she just happened to have a copy sitting on her shelf. And it was God who'd moved miraculously upon her just so that I would get the particular books that I needed. Now, do you see, God wonderfully confirmed that I was to be a Bible teacher. All right, but you now looking at me might say, ah, oh, yes, but of course he's so convinced about this. He's never had any problem with the Bible. Do you know, if that's what you think, you are really mistaken. Because when I was first converted, I had terrible trouble with this Bible. And do you know, it was so awful, the trouble I had, that for two and a half years I asked God, Lord, open the Bible to me. And by the way, even though you've got a good, kind Bible teacher, could I just say it is essential for every one of you to pray regularly that God would open up his word for you. You need your own revelation of the word of God. I remember when God began opening up the word of God incidentally, he showed me uh, a picture of a junkyard. And I thought it was a junkyard. He said, no, it's a building site. And what had happened was there was this area of land and there were bricks and there were pipes and there were sinks and there were girders and there were roof tiles and chimney pots and all the other things, all in this huge mountain on this bit of land. And the Lord said, that's what the Bible's like, right? It's got everything you need, but it's all over the place. And he showed me the whole land swept clean and soon a framework had been put up. And once the framework had been put up, bits were added. And do you know, soon it was obvious where every brick went. And the Lord just said to me, I will give you the framework of the word of God, and soon you'll know where every verse fits in, and so on. It was really wonderful. But that was after two and a half years. 
When I started out, it was terrible. You see, the Christians around, I, all I knew was that Jesus was alive. I was thrilled. Jesus was alive. The Christians around said, now you've got to start reading the Bible. And they gave me an RSV, Revised Standard Version Bible, and I began to read uh, the Bible. Now, where do you begin reading a book? At the beginning. So that's where I began. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And I was a scientific geographer. I mean, if ever there was a passage that I shouldn't have read, it was Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. Well, I read Genesis 1, and I thought, heavens, what have I got involved with? <laughs> Terrible. I mean, it was rubbish. I read it through God created in six days. What rubbish. Rested the seventh day. Heavens. The sun created after the grasses. Really? Then I plowed on chapter two, chapter three, literal Adam and Eve. <sighs> By the time I reached Noah's flood, I thought I've had enough and I put it aside. And I thought, well, this is absolute rubbish. Complete rubbish. I mean, I was doing a degree in evolution. I mean, you don't turn to the book of Genesis if you're doing a degree in evolution. This was old-fashioned stuff. Darwin had disproved all this. I mean, that was fact. And so I thought, well, this book is nothing but mythological stories. And I didn't read it consecutively. I used to just jump in and out. Do you know what I mean? Read an occasional chapter here. And there. I didn't know what the Old Testament was or the New Testament. I just used to dash about, do you see? And then, much to my consternation, a few days after that, as I was dipping into the Word of God, I suddenly found a verse that shook me. Can we turn to it? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, I found the first verse of the Bible I've ever believed. This is it. And you know it very well, I hope. Verse 17. Now, I was just reading through, and here was verse 17. Therefore, it says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. No, I knew it was right. It had happened to me, you see. I mean, when I was converted, there was a fantastic change as far as my life was concerned. What I would call a transmogrification occurred, which is quite good for a Tuesday evening right? A complete change had occurred in my life. Now, here was a verse I knew that was true. Now, I'd found six or seven chapters that were rubbish, one verse now that was right. Well, then I continued to read, and then I found other verses, like uh, Romans 3.23, that all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. Now, I knew I had, and all the friends I had around, I bet my bottom dollar they had as well. So it seemed as if it was right. Romans 7 also seemed right to me, that when I wanted to do good, evil was the thing that I found close at hand. You see? And I began to think, yes, there are these passages that are right. Then I had other problems, for there were certain passages, and I didn't know whether they were right or wrong. I mean, I remember reading the resurrection story one time, and the resurrection story went on. I certainly knew Jesus was alive. The problem was, how did I know it had happened the way the Bible said? I mean, the Bible had got the beginning wrong. <laughs> might it have got the middle wrong? And might it have got the end wrong as well? I mean, it said that Jesus rose on the third day. Well, it had got the six days wrong in Genesis. I mean, how do I know that the three days was right? And here was my problem. Now, it was a big problem. Let me just spell it out to you. One. There were passages in the Bible I knew were rubbish. By the way, I don't believe it now. Could I just throw that in at this point? There were passages I knew were rubbish. There were passages I knew were truth. But there were a whole number of other passages, and I didn't know whether they were true or not. I had not the slightest idea. I mean, did Malachi really exist? I don't know. And I just couldn't work it out, you see. I was in the most dreadful trouble over this. And do you know, in a situation like that, there's only one thing you can do. You have to appeal to God to help. Lord, will you just show me? And God gradually leads you into truth. By the way, if you're a non-Christian here tonight and you've got problems with the Bible, please ask God to show you. He wrote it. I mean, if you have a problem with my books, come and see me, right? 
I'll try and sort out what I mean. If you've got problems with the Bible, go to God first and ask him about it. And the Lord, as I pray, began to show me certain answers. The first thing he showed me was this, that I was making a fundamental mistake. Because, you see, I was putting myself up as the main authority. See what I mean? If I thought it was right, it was right. If I thought it was wrong, it was wrong. And if I didn't know whether it was right or wrong, then I didn't know. But who was the authority around here? Why, I was. Of course, the Bible itself says that the Word of God is alive and powerful, and it is the critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. But no, 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 I was the critic of the Bible. Well, that seems right to me, so that's right. By the way, in my original Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.17, I put a big tick in the margin. I wish I still had that Bible. I gave it to an alcoholic in Oxford, I remember. But this big tick was there. I found the verse, one verse that I could believe. So I believed it, it was right. I didn't believe that, so it was wrong. Well, I don't know about the rest. Right? Did David exist? I don't know. So I was all at sea, as far as these verses were concerned. Now, I began to see that that was incorrect, do you see? And it was rather interesting, because at that time, a certain man came and spoke in the place where I was living at that time. And he started preaching in a certain way that made me know that it was wrong for a person to criticize the Bible. By the way, you can't do it, you know, over the Bible. Has anyone, now we've had the story of the three cats, have you ever heard the story of the post office clock? Have you heard that story? The story of the post office clock is this. I don't know whether you know this, but the English post offices have to be accurate. They're, they're clocks. Did you know that? They have to be absolutely right by law. And they actually have inspectors that go around. don't know whether they do today. They certainly did a few years ago that check the clocks, you see. And there's the story about a post office in a little village. I think it was in Devon. Everything seems to happen in Devon. And uh, an inspector went down, and he had a look around the post office, and everything was super. It was running like clockwork. And um, <laughs> he, he went out of the door. He was about to climb into his van, and he suddenly looked up and looked at his watch. The clock was wrong. Five minutes. Couldn't believe it. He got up, called the head postmaster over and said, excuse me, your clock's wrong. Five minutes. No, quite impossible. Well, do you put it right? Every day I put it right. Well, it's wrong. Five minutes. It can't be wrong. Do you ring up the speaking clock? No. He said, I don't have to bother. And he said, well, how do you correct your clock then? And he said, it's easy. Look, he said, and he took him outside and just opposite there was a little cottage and they walked across and looked in through the window and he said, do you see that clock on that mantelpiece? That's a ship's chronometer. And you know a ship's chronometer is the most accurate type of clock that there is. I always put my clock right by that ship's chronometer. Okay, the fellow said. And off went the head postmaster. And the minute he was gone, the inspector knocked on the door of the house. And an old uh, salt, you know, sea captain, answered the door. And he said, excuse me, can I have a look at your clock? Oh, yes, he said, it's fine. It's a ship's chronometer, you know. Yes, he said, I know. And he had a look at it. He said, does it keep good time? Well, he said, it doesn't really because it had salt in it. But I correct it every day. <laughs> and he says, well, how do you correct it every day? Well, do you see over there? That's the main post office. <laughs> and he said, and you know, by law, the post office has to be accurate. And he said, I always put my clock right by the post office clock. <laughs> now, do you see what happened? If you start doing that type of thing, you're really wrong. And that's what I was doing, you see. Over certain things, I was saying, oh, yes, that sounds like a good idea. I think I'll accept that. Oh, that's rubbish. I won't have that. And so there was this sliding scale of value. No wonder I was all at sea over this. Do you see? I'm sorry about it. Right? But no wonder there were problems in all of this. And then the chap came and he spoke and he did what I was doing and I was appalled when I saw it. He turned to Matthew chapter 25. Can we do it together? Now, he was a social gospeler. Do you know what a social gospeler is? A chap who says, it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you're good, you'll get there. As long as you give a cup of cold water to everyone who knocks on your door, 
You'll be all right. That's what he says. And in Matthew 25, can I just read it through and uh, you'll see. Verse 31, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. He read this out. And before him shall be gathered all nations. He shall separate the one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. He shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was unhungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee, a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee, sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Now he missed verse 41. Didn't read it. I'll read it. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. He missed it out. Because the social gospeler believes that there are sheep and goats, but both go into heaven. doesn't matter whether you're a sheep or a goat. You'll have done something good in your life, even if it's just giving an onion to someone. And that will get you there, you see. So he missed verse 41. And then it goes on, well, why? Well, you see, for I was unhungered. He actually stopped there and said, uh, but there are people who don't do this. And Jesus says this to them, verse 42, for I was unhungered and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you took me not in, and ye clothed me not. Naked and you clothed me not. Sick and in prison and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he say unto them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me, and he closed his Bible. Missing the last verse, which I will read to you. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. And afterwards I asked him, why did you miss those verses out? He said, well, no one believes in hellfire. No one believes in hell in these days. I don't believe in hell. And so do you see what he'd done? He based his doctrine on the bits of the Bible that suited him, and the bits that didn't suit him, he threw out the window. And when I left that particular place, I thought, Lord, that can't be right. You can't. You can't do it. And I sat down and thought, and I suddenly realized you have one of two choices. You either accept the whole Bible as authoritative, or you reject it all. But you can't pick and choose the bits that seem right to you. You see, if you reject one authority, you must take another authority. And if you reject God's authority, you are the authority around here. Well, I feel I'm all right. I don't believe there's life after death. That's it. You know, the big master has spoken. But you could be wrong. You just might be wrong. Oh, dear, oh dear. Well, I don't think this path leads over the cliff. Oh, very nice. Well, you go first. <laughs> you see? You just might be wrong. And I began to see that these were the alternatives. I either, either had to accept it all, even the bits I didn't understand, or I had to reject it all. Right? That it was nice stories, but really you couldn't trust it. That was it. Now, the odd thing was, I couldn't reject it all. I just couldn't. Because, you see, I found certain bits that were true. Ah, that was niggling. On the other hand, I couldn't accept it all either. I, I had a real blank spot. I could not believe that this Bible was the Word of God. I couldn't believe it. So what did I do? More prayer. Lord, show me and as I began to pray, the Lord showed me why I couldn't accept this as the Word of God. And you know, it had nothing to do with the Bible. It had to do with my idea of God, first of all. You see, I thought that God was a long way out there. He was miles away. A God who existed all right, but who never spoke. What God speaks? Have you ever told someone that God speaks to you? 
I mean, Aunt Fanny can talk to you, but God can't. Isn't that amazing? My little boy can talk to me, but God, who is much bigger than my little boy, can't. Funny, isn't it? I can write a book, but God can't. You mean God wrote this? <laughs> Rubbish. And this is actually an idea that I picked up from my agnostic days. You know, don't you, agnostics believe that there is a God, but he never intervenes, never talks. You can never know him. I mean, he's out there somewhere, but don't try and find him. He's out there. Forget it. That's why I'm always interested to know that the Latin word for agnostic is ignoramus, <laughs> which you know very well, I hope. And I began to see, you understand, that in fact my idea of God was wrong. You see, I didn't believe that God spoke or that he wrote books. Well, I just might be wrong on that. And I, I wonder whether we can have a look at just a few little verses here. You'll notice this, that the Bible is at least self-consistent. The Bible definitely says that God does speak and that he does write. So if the Bible says that that is what God's like, it therefore isn't too far-fetched if it also claims to be the word of God. Whether it is or not, well, we're going to see next time, you see. But uh, let's have a look, just quickly through this. Let's review through uh, Genesis and Exodus and so on very quickly. Genesis 1, 28. Here's Adam and Eve, and look at this. Verse 28, I'm going to do this very rapidly. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth and subdue it. Did God really speak to them? Well, I wonder. What about Genesis 3.9? In Genesis 3.9, And the Lord God called unto Adam and said, Where art thou? Really? Oh, come on, God doesn't talk like that, does he? Well, the Bible seems to say that he does. Or in Genesis 6, I mean, this is preposterous. Genesis 6, verse 13, And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood, room shalt thou make in the ark, and shall pitch it within and without with pitch, and this is the fashion which thou shalt make of it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. Oh, come on. God's not interested in measurements like that. It can't be so. You see? And then it says the breadth of it, 50 cubits, the height of it, 30 cubits, a window. Sh oh. Go to Genesis 12. I mean, surely God doesn't speak like this. Peter Franklin talks like this. <laughs> right? Other people in the fellowship talk like this. But God, no. Verse 1, Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. So it can't be, can it? Then you, I read in the New Testament that when Jesus was baptized, they heard a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son. Really? Well, I found it very hard, you see. Oh, have a look at this one. Now, Deuteronomy 5. Just have a check of this one. This is a, a staggering statement in Deuteronomy chapter 5. For here, not only does God say that he speaks, he says that two million people heard him at one time. <clears throat> now really, I mean, the population of Manchester, hearing God speaking. Oh, come on. Verse 22, these words the Lord spake unto all your assembly out of the midst of the fire of the cloud of the thick darkness with a great voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them in two tablets of stone and delivered them unto me. Oh, come on, Moses wrote them, didn't he? He took a chisel up and wrote, Dear Eddie, it doesn't say so. I mean, this doesn't prove anything. All it shows, however, is that the Bible definitely says that God did write. Hmm. And it came to pass when you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness. Do you see that? They heard God speaking. One last one in Exodus 31, 18. Now look what it says. This is the, the covenant, the law. Verse 18, He gave unto Moses, when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tablets of testimony, tables of stone, written with the finger of God. 
So as I looked into this, I saw, well, look, I, I may find it hard to believe, but definitely it seems that the God of the Bible does speak. And by the way, he is, I knew, he is a God who intervenes. How did I know that he was? Well, he'd saved me. I began to see it was my thinking that was wrong. And by the way, when you hear people outside who say the Bible isn't the inspired word of God, do you know it's their belief in God that's faulty. They've got the wrong idea of God. I also realized at the same time I had another problem, and it was this. Even if God had said this, it was human authors that have written it down. So then I reasoned, ah, well, you see, the minute a man gets involved with something, error has got to come in and be involved with it, because men are fallen. And so, obviously, this word might have started out perfect, but by the time it's come to us, it's imperfect. And at first sight, you know, you think, yes, that's quite right. I mean, you know, it does come out imperfectly. Ah. But listen, it's not true. You just think about Jesus. Jesus was the perfect man. He was sinless, right? We call this the impeccability of Christ. He was born without sin, and he lived without sin. But who was his mother? Why, an ordinary woman. And you remember in the Magnificat, she actually says, God is my saviour, meaning she's a fallen woman. Now, out of a fallen woman came a perfect person. Rather wonderful. So human involvement doesn't necessarily mean that error comes into the thing and evilness comes into the thing. By the way, Jesus was man and God, and yet still perfect. It was those two things that had given me my major problems. Do you see? All right, now can I say, at that point I was ready to start asking the questions and finding answers. And the questions that I asked are questions that I'm going to ask in the next few studies, and we're going to have a few answers to them. These are the questions that I'm going to ask, all right? In the next study, I'm going to ask these questions and I'm going to answer it. One, is there any indication in the Bible that it is the Word of God? And we're going to have a look at science in the Bible and see how it was thousands of years ahead of its time and that scientists have agreed and disagreed, but the Bible's remained the same and at last most scientists have caught up with the Bible. That's the first thing that we're going to see, all right? The second question we're going to ask is this, how did God give the Bible to us? And both of those are going to be answered next time. And by the way, next time is a very useful little study for those of you who have non-Christian friends, very useful. Uh, we'll be seeing a few facts of the matter, objective facts that are rather interesting. All right, in the talk after that, we're going to answer this question. How do we know that the Bible that existed two or three thousand years ago is the same Bible we've got today? I mean, surely it's changed. It's a different Bible. Well, we're going to answer that. Praise the Lord. After that, in the next talk, we're then going to answer the question, well, who decided which books went in the Bible? And what about the Apocrypha? Right? Have you heard of the Apocrypha? We don't believe it's inspired. Well, how do we know? Funny that we believe the rest is inspired. How do you know that's not inspired? And in the talk after that, I'm going to deal with apparent contradictions in the Bible. And I'm going to take about 18 passages in the Word of God that seem totally contradictory. Like, how did Judas die? One passage says he hanged himself, the other said he fell headlong, and his bowels burst out. Well, I'm going to enjoy that very much, that particular <laughs> study. All right, this is the way that we're going to go. But for the rest of today's study, what I want to do is to state what we believe now. So here's the statement, and some of you may find this incredible, but this is honestly what I believe with all my heart. And you'll see the reasoning why a little later on. Now, on my doctrinal statement, I've actually written up uh, on the doctrinal statement, I've written about what we believe in the Bible, and I've written it up here. Let's see. Some of you perhaps can't see that at the back, so let me just read it out. This is the statement that I've actually made. We believe that all Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, is given by inspiration of God. Now, I'll be describing that next time. As the authors were moved by the Holy Spirit, we believe, therefore, that the Bible in its original manuscripts, 
the Hebrew, the Aramaic and Greek manuscripts is without error and that it is therefore historically and scientifically true. Notice, not just historically true, scientifically true as well. What, six days? Yes, six days. That is the statement that I make. All right? Now, can I say that 200 years ago, the vast majority of Christians believed that statement. Today, it's a minority of Christians who believe that particular statement. About 100 to 150 years ago, you had a group of people called critics who came along, Bible critics. And they came, they were mainly in Germany at first, Britain had its share as well. Now there are a lot of them in America. Germany, Britain and America were the three centers of Bible criticism. By the way, there are two types of critics, let's make this clear. There are lower critics and higher critics. Lower critics are our friends. If a chap comes up to you and you say, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a lower critic. I've never met one yet, but you just might bump into one. Right? Don't, don't turn on your heel and flee. He's your friend. A lower critic looks at the texts of the Bible and he's trying to find older and older and older texts of the Bible to try and find out what the original text is. And generally, they're good chaps and ladies. Right? Pretty good. However, there's another group of people, and these are the problem ones, who are called the higher critics. And the higher critics decide when a book was written, who wrote it, how it got written, and so on. And these are the people who tear the Bible to shreds. I heard, by the way, the story the other day of a modernist preacher who went to visit one of his parishioners who was dying. And uh, he said, shall I say a prayer? And he uh, he said, yes, say a prayer. And should we read a passage of the Bible? Yes. And the man took his Bible in his bed, and the preacher took his Bible. And he said, we'll turn to uh, such and such a verse. And as the man opened his Bible, there were whole holes in the Bible. It was just shreds. And the chap said, what's happened to your Bible? He said, well, over the last 20 years as you've preached, you said that such and such, you know, you can't take that literally. So I've cut it out of my Bible. And... This man hardly had a Bible left. There were just a few shreds. And the preacher suddenly realized what he'd been doing. Every verse that he poured scorn on, this fellow had cut out of his Bible. Do you know, if you did that, and if some of these uh, apostates did it, they might realize just what nonsense they've got left. You see? And that's what had actually happened. Now, the higher critic is the chap who tells you to do it. This is the sort of thing he does. First of all, he believes that God hasn't written a book, and there's no such thing as prophecy. So he comes along to, say, Matthew's Gospel, where Matthew describes in great detail the siege of Jerusalem, which happened in AD 70. And he said it's so detailed, Matthew obviously wrote this after AD 70. So he says Matthew's Gospel is written after AD 70. Well, how do we know? Well, he couldn't have been that accurate. And that's it. Now, do you see, he's made certain assumptions, hasn't he? I believe that God did write the Bible and that God does know history before it happens. So we can have Matthew's Gospel written before AD 70. He can't. At one time, 150 years ago, you know, they, they said that there wasn't any writing in Moses' day. No one could write in Moses' day. Oh, well, that meant, of course, that the first five books of the Bible couldn't have been written in Moses' day and weren't written by Moses says they were. No, no, no. Not written by Moses. Aha. Uh -huh. So who did write them, you ask? Well, they said, we've got a few theories about this. And this is the generally held theory today. They noticed that in some parts of the first five books of the Bible, the name used for God was Jehovah. So they thought, well, whoever wrote that, like the name Jehovah, we'll call him J. J. Don't know who, what his name was, but J. Um, another chap liked to use the name of God, Elohim. We'll call him E. Well, someone else obviously wrote the book of Deuteronomy. We'll call him D. And then obviously there were priests who put the whole thing together and wrote the genealogies. We'll call them P. So who wrote the first five books of the Bible? Moses? Rubbish. Who did it? Well, it was J, E, D, and P. There they are. And by the way, if you ever take a Bible and read some of their books and colour in the verses that were written by J and colour in the verses written by E, colour in the verses written by D and by P, you'll find that sometimes mid-verse, apparently another chap takes over the writing. 
and you get this technicolor page of all the different people who've written. You can cut it up. It's absolutely incredible what they do, you see. By the way, just after they'd said that, they actually found a black pillar called a stele, S-T-E-L-E. It was the stele of Hammurabi's code. And you know it was written before Moses lived. The higher critics should at that point say, oh, sorry, we've made a mistake. Did they? No, sir. It was proved that there was writing in Moses' day. They still said, well, never mind. It's a good theory. J, E, D, and P. Isn't it nonsense? Now that is the sort of stuff that they do. This is why some uh, Bible scholars call, don't call them the higher critics. They call them the higher crickets. You know what a cricket is, don't you? A grasshopper. And the thing about them is they always make a lot of noise and they're always in the dark. All right, that's what it says. What does the Bible say? Does the Bible say Moses wrote it? Yes, it does. I mean, let's have a look. Exodus 24. Let's just go through a few of these. Exodus 24. It's absolutely teeming with references to Moses' authorship. Right? Exodus 24. Verse 4, and Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up early in the morning. Who wrote it? Moses did. It says so there. Verse 7, and he took the book of the covenant and read it in the audience of the people. And they said, all that the Lord hath said we will do and be obedient. He took the book. There was a book in those days. Now you could go right through these five books. Moses wrote them. Joshua says he wrote them. Right? One and two kings keep saying Moses wrote these books. Chronicles, Moses wrote them. Ezra, Moses wrote them. Nehemiah, Moses wrote them. Daniel, Moses wrote them. Even Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Who wrote it? Moses did. Let's have a look at Malachi. You should have no trouble finding Malachi just before Matthew. Isn't that easy? Malachi 4, verse 4. Malachi 4, verse 4. Remember ye... The law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Moses wrote it, it says. Even greater than this is the testimony of Jesus himself. For Jesus definitely states that Moses was the author of these particular books. Can we see a few of those? Go to the New Testament, Mark 7. Mark 7. Now in verse 8, he talks about the commandments of God. Mark 7 verse 8, For laying aside the commandments of God, you hold the traditions of men. He then goes on to say what the commandment of God says. Look, verse 10, oh, verse 9, And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandments of God, that you may keep your own tradition. For Moses said, Honour thy father and thy mother, and whosoever curses father or mother, let him die. That's the Ten Commandments. Moses said it. See the connection there? Moses and the original books. Definitely Moses is the author. You see? Uh, go to the beginning of John. John 1. I mean, I'm just picking out odd verses. There are loads of them. This is showing the Bible is consistent within itself. John 1, verse 17. Then there's a really lovely one in John 5. Look at this, John 1, 17. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. John 5, John 5, 45. He says, look, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. For had ye believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? Paul says Moses wrote the law. I'll show you one verse on that, right? This is Romans 10, you know it well. Verse 5. Romans 10, verse 5. Look at this. For Moses... Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth these things shall live by them. Moses and the law connected together. So do you see, the higher critics have J and E and D and P. And if, if Jesus had said, well, as J once said, or as D once said, or something, they'd have some grounds for it. They have no grounds for it. 
at all. What do they do about Isaiah? Ah, oh, well, now this is it, right? Well, as I read Isaiah, they say, I detect two halves to the book, right? There's Isaiah 1 to 39, there's Isaiah 40 to 66. And they're so different, these two halves, that we think two people wrote them. Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 2. Isaiah and Deutero Isaiah, as they called them. There you are. You see? Not allowing for the fact, Isaiah might have changed in style. By the way, you listen to some of my early tapes. The critics will say, oh, that was a different Roger Price. Right? By the way, it was so lovely. Uh, a few years ago, some computer critics took Paul's letters and analyzed them by computer. And the computer actually said that Paul's letters were written by eight different authors. I wonder what you call those. Be a problem, wouldn't it? You know, X, Y, and Z, I suppose. Ah, well, there you are. Now, the computer, it's proved it. The computer's proved it. And one chap wrote a whole report on this, you know. Well, this is how my computer proved that uh, the, the epistles of Paul were written by eight different authors. One Bible scholar who believed in the Bible took the report that the man has written and fed it into the same computer. And the computer said that ten men had written that. <laughs> rather good, wasn't it? Very good. That's the sort of thing we need. Now, by the way, uh, were there two Isaiahs? Oh, there's a marvelous passage, just one little passage where Jesus shows quite clearly there weren't two, there was only one. And I love this passage. I imagine the twinkle in Jesus' eye as he thought one day he's going to be speaking about that in Chichester, right? We need this verse. Let's have a look at it. John chapter 12. John 12. Now, I'll read it carefully. And here, there are two quotations from Isaiah. The first one from the second half of the book. The second one from the first half of the book. Now, notice how it's put. Uh, verse 37. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. And he quotes from Isaiah 53.1, which he spake... Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, see how it's framed, the same Isaiah, now he quotes from Isaiah 6, verse 10, the other half of the book. But he says it's the same chap. Well, well. He hath blinded their eyes, and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and that I should heal them. These things said Isaiah, when he saw his glory, and spake of him. Two Isaiahs, rubbish. One Isaiah. So saith the, the Bible. You see? All right, so that's what we believe. Let's uh, go into a bit more detail. Now, this will be a shock for some of you. Today, if you are asked to give an accurate definition of what we believe, we have to say this, that we believe in the verbal, plenary, infallible, inerrant inspiration of the Bible. Before the critics came along, all you could say was, well, I believe the Bible's inspired. It's the critics that have made us this accurate. Why verbal? Well, you see, some people came along and said, well, the Bible contains truth, but it's not the real words of God. Oh, yes, it is. We believe in the verbal inspiration of the, the Bible, that God actually spoke these very words, verbal. Plenary is a word meaning full. All the Bible was spoken by God. Didn't just miss a little bit out. All of it. Next, infallible. It is a good rule for our lives. It's the only rule that we have for our lives. Next, inerrant. Some don't like this little word. Inerrant means it is without error, totally. In the original manuscripts, notice, I'll be talking about that in a, a few studies' time. It's inerrant, without error. By the way, if you say any part of this has error in it, well, isn't that a convenient excuse? If you don't believe it, oh, well, that's one of those passages you'll know that has an error in it. I actually have here uh, a quotation from Augustine. Can I just read you this? Dear Saint Augustine, who believed in the inerrancy of Scripture, look what he says. Most disastrous consequences must follow our believing that anything false is found in the sacred books. That is to say that the men by whom the Scripture has been given to us and committed to writing did put down anything false. 
If you once submit into such a high sanctuary of authority one false statement, there will be not left a single sentence of those books, which if appearing to anyone difficult in practice or hard to believe, may not by the same fatal rule be explained away. And that's it, isn't it? You see, if you say we've got errors in, well, a bit that you don't understand, oh, well, that's an error. And before long, you haven't got anything left. That's an error, and this is an error, and how do you know that's an error? Why do you believe that? How do you know that's not wrong? And so you go on. So that's what we believe. Verbal, plenary, infallible, inerrant, inspiration. God breathed it. That is the word of God that we believe. Here it is then. Now I'm hoping that during this course you will get excited about the Word of God. What a wonderful book. 66 books. I've written some facts up here. These are good facts. Here's the Bible. 66 books. Some long, the longest is Psalms. Some short, the shortest is 2 John. Right? If you've only got a little bit of time, 2 John's your book. 66 books. 1,189 chapters, 773,746 words, 3,566,480 letters, and every one of them given by God. That's what I believe. Well, well. Written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. Look, written over a period of 1,600 years. That's the time span between the books, written by 40 authors over 60 generations. And the authors are all different, entirely different. Look at some of them. Moses, who was a political leader. Peter was a fisherman. Amos, a herdsman. Joshua, a military leader. Luke, a doctor. Nehemiah, a butler. Daniel, a prime minister. Paul, that's a rabbi, not a rabbit. Right? <laughs> Paul, a rabbi, Solomon, a king, Matthew, a tax collector, and so we could go on and on and on from all sorts of different backgrounds, and yet they all agree. Written on three continents, some was written in Africa, some in Asia, some in Europe, and yet it's one message. There is no disagreement between the books. They all flow together. It's the most wonderful, miraculous book. As we'll see next time, the other religious books don't compare to it. They don't even begin to compare to this marvelous book that we call the Bible. And the one message is the message of man's redemption. This is the way to get to heaven. This is the analysis of your problem. This is the analysis of God's solution and the analysis of how it can be applied to you. This is the book that we love so much, and yet the world thinks it's terrible. Do you know Voltaire said that the Bible will not be in existence by 1850? There won't be any Bibles left by 1850. That's what he said. Was he right? Well, most people today would say, who's Voltaire? <laughs> but they all know what the Bible is. Let me just end with one or two quotes. You know Churchill believed in the inerrancy of Scripture, do you? Right? I've uh, got a quotation. I'll try and find it. I haven't been able to locate the exact quotation that I wanted, but I'll find it before the end of the course. George Washington was one who believed. He says this, It is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. It's true. Only we could see it in our own parliament. Gladstone, right? This is what he said. I have known 95 of the world's great men in my time, and of these, 87 were followers of the Bible. Oh, if only it could be said today. Napoleon. The Bible is more than a book. It's a living being with an action, a power which invades everything that opposes its extension. That's true. That's what we believe. And in the next sessions, we're going to see some of the reasons why we can feel quite justified in believing this about the Bible. For this book contains the very words of life. If you're a believer here, I recommend it to you. Get into it deeply. If you're an unbeliever, I also recommend it. The number of people who've been converted just reading it. Let its authority speak to you. Right? Let it come through. And you'll suddenly see God has indeed spoken. And this is his word. Next time we'll be speaking about every word that proceeds 
from the mouth of God. Let's just pray together before we complete for tonight. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Father, I ask in Jesus' name that this land of ours, Father, may see a back-to-the-Bible movement again. Father, we acknowledge that you made Britain great because of biblical Christianity. Father, we look at last century and we see that there was godliness in the law system of our land. There was godliness in our parliament. Father, there were many things wrong last century, but those in government had the mind of the Scriptures. And so, Father, compared to other nations, Britain was so advanced and the social system was so good. Father, we know that you will bless any nation that turns to you and turns to your word. I would ask you, Father, that you will make every one of us, Father, realize that we have a part to play in this. We ask, Father, that even through the tapes that go out from this fellowship, Britain may yet be turned back from the abyss. Father, we ask that our politicians might realize that they are the authority at the moment and they're wandering in the darkness, but that God has shone his light into that darkness. Father, we pray that you will raise up men of our own generation, men and women, who will stand for the authority of the Word of God and who will become unshakable. Father, may they be scholars who are able to answer those who will gainsay it. Father, for everyone who's listening, I pray you will challenge each and every heart that, Father, we shouldn't leave it to someone else, but we might make sure that we will do our part. Father, I do thank you that even in this land at this time, there is a godly remnant. Hallelujah. Thank you that the word of God is still gossiped abroad in this land. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father, that as people do their washing, as people have meals together, as people go for walks together, they are talking about the word. And Father, we ask that there should be such revival in Jesus' name, that people should hear the word of the Lord and that our nation might turn again. Father, we say to you, here am I, send me, Lord. Just use us. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen.